We're going to be talking about pre-tribulation rapture. Yeah, yeah, what what began as a one-off has turned now into four weeks of teachings, and we're going to spill into next week. Maybe the week after, I don't know. I may see if I can get it done next week, I will. I don't know if I can. Um, this has been really a, a, a joy for me personally, just to be able to spread it out and, and, and take my time. And, you know, I, I really had that sense even before the first night, the afternoon of the first study, just what, what's the hurry? If he comes before you're done, he'll explain the rest. <laughs> so I don't have to worry about that, praise the Lord. But still, just taking our time and thinking through these different points that we have covered. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, let's just go back to the basis of what we've been talking about. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, picking up in verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And again, Father, just to be with you. We sang those words a moment ago, and that is it. That's the, that's the heart. That's the comfort, Lord. For all the things that we feel like we've got to accomplish and wonder if we ever will, that's the one we don't even have to worry about. We just continue walking in faithfulness until you come, until you call us out. And that day, I just, I long for it, Lord. I also long for the hearts of those who have not chosen to follow you. So somewhere in this divine tension between your calling us home and your calling out to the lost through your people, the church, and the world today, and by your spirit, we live. And I ask, Lord, that you will just help us to be content until we hear your voice, in Jesus' name. Oh, and one more thing, Father, would you direct us through this teaching tonight? Would you help us understand and comprehend and process it well together, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so when we began the study, um, I presented the four predominant views of what's going to happen, of what Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 17 calls the catching up, or the harpazo in Greek, or in Latin, the raptus, or what has been transliterated to, the rapture. And when does that happen? How, not even how does that happen, because I think that's pretty clear in the twinkling of an eye. Now, I've never gone anywhere in the twinkling of an eye, but it's going to happen that way, so we don't have to worry about how, but, but when is it going to happen? And so the four views we talked about are pre-mid, pre mid, pre-wrath, and then post-tribulation view. I said this on Sunday, but I want to repeat it tonight. If the the mid-tribulation view of the rapture is correct, that is, God begins to pour out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. It's a seven-year period of time. We'll talk about that tonight. And, And if we are to go through the first three and a half years of that time of wrath, which is what mid-tribulation rapture says, that we're three and a half years in, we get caught up. That's when it happens. And there's a reason that the mid-tribulationist believes that, which I won't explain this week. But if that view is correct, then we are at least three and a half years away from being caught up. 
And that is if there was a peace treaty signed between Israel and the Antichrist today. Then we would know we still have three and a half years. So I could, if I was a mid-tribulationist, I could with confidence tell you we are much more than three and a half years away. Got to wait for Antichrist. When Antichrist rises, signs a covenant with Israel. And you might not even say, well, how do we know it's Antichrist? A great world leader, a man of peace, a great orator, as the Bible describes him. And there will be a, a covenant, a seven-year covenant of peace that's signed by the people of Israel. So just wait for that. And then you know for certain that you got three and a half years and then we're gonna be caught up. That's the mid-tribulation view. If, if you take a, a pre-wrath view of the rapture, add another one to two years onto that because the pre-wrath view comes like four years, four and a half, maybe five years into that seven-year tribulation. So you still got plenty of time, plenty of time. If the post-tribulation view is accurate, you have a full seven years before the rapture of the church would happen, and that is, again, after the signing of this covenant of peace. Here's the problem with all three views. None of them fit the words of Jesus. If you just take Jesus, plain and simple, Matthew 24, 36, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Matthew 24, 42, therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. And then finally, verse 44 of Matthew 24, for this reason you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think. See, for the mid-tribulation view or the pre-wrath view or the post-tribulation view, he will be coming at a time when we would think, when we would know. We could just count it out. Just start the clock and you know this is when we'll go. But Jesus is very clear, we do not know. And we won't know, and it's going to happen at a time we don't think it's going to happen. The only way for those words to fit is the pre-tribulation rapture view, which says at some point before that tribulation begins, we're gone. And we aren't going to be able to, like, time it out from this day forward. It could be in five minutes. It could be in five days. It could be in five years. We don't know. That's what Jesus described. That's... Jesus' way also, I think, of saying, live a sanctified life because I'm going to come at any time. Just be a faithful servant, a, a patient servant, like we talked about last week. So only the pre-tribulation rapture of the church agrees with the very simple and plain teachings of Jesus. That should end the discussion. But as long as we're here, <laughs> we have looked at the personal catch, right? Jesus saying, I will, where I am, that where I am, there you will also be. Just to be with you, like we're saying, the personal catch. I am the resurrection, he says. We talked about the power lift, which is just my way of describing 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18, the actual catching up, the power lift. I mean, it's an amazing thing that's gonna happen. We looked at, thirdly, in our list, and if you're just joining us, jot these down, but thirdly, we looked at pre-tribulation precedence. In the scriptures, in the Hebrew scriptures on through the New Testament, there are precedents for this idea of the rapture, of being caught up going all the way back to the seventh generation from Adam with Enoch, who was with God and God took him and he was no more. He got raptured, first man to be raptured. Then we talked about the paideia, and that was just kind of a little side note. It's not so much a, a proof of a pre-tribulation rapture. It's more, what about kids? That question was raised. What about 
children. And we talked a little bit about that. And I think the most compelling thing that I didn't even bring up, uh, Linda did, and, and someone else backed it up with further scripture, is that God looked at the children of Israel as adults at the age of 20. That's the only thing in scripture that I've been able to find uh, that supports the notion of you know, an age of accountability, which is very interesting to me because it's a whole lot older than I would have thought. I would have said that little bugger when he hits seven better know what he's doing, you know? <laughs> the paideia. So we, we looked at that just as, as a sidetrack. Then we talked about the fifth point, which is the paralambano. Paralambano meaning received unto, and it's that whole thing, one will be taken, one will be left. One will be paralambanoed, received unto, one will be left. And Jesus said, you know, I'm gonna come and receive you to myself, paralambano, that where I am, there you may also be. And that's John 14 and Matthew 24. We, we talked through those. That's all in the study, and it's, it's the last three weeks if you missed any of that. Then we talked about the patient servant. The patient servant is number six, and that is the person who the master finds so doing when he comes, just feeding the house and doing so until Jesus comes. Just staying in your lane, doing what he called you to do, being faithful, being humble. We're not, you know, I heard something today. <sighs> Side note, I won't say who it is or what church it was, but we were in staff meeting and, and Jake played a clip of this pastor preaching and, and he was getting really into it, which I don't understand that at all. But he was really rolling with it and, and all fired up. And he said, and we have got to, you know, we have got to get out and get the world, get the word out to the whole entire world. We have got to save the world. I mean, it was that mentality. And I sat there and I went, no, we don't. No, we don't. I am absolutely an avid believer in the Great Commission. I believe we need to get the word out. I want the whole world to know, but we are not gonna do it. We're part of it. We get to, for our part, be involved with it. But I'll tell you what, after the church is raptured, again, pre-tribulation view, there's gonna be some massive salvation going on on this earth that has nothing to do with the church. And the, the difference in that is the patient servant is simply serving because the master's asked us to serve, not because he thinks he's gonna conquer the world. That's a king. Kings conquer, servants just serve. And our job, our role is not to be global conquerors. Our job is to be faithful servants. Now, if that leads you into missions in a foreign country, God bless you. And you all know we support that seriously at the bridge. That matters. But we're not doing so because we think we're going to conquer the world and hand it over to Jesus on a silver platter. No, he will come and he will bring the kingdom. Until then, we're just the patient servants. That's number six. Number seven, see, I could go through these that we've already done and take the whole night just reviewing. Number seven, we talked about a perfected or a perfecting escape that in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we're caught up and, and there's that instantaneous transformation that happens where we go from human vessels to being perfected and glorified. In the day of Christ Jesus, until then, we are being perfected. There is a process of sanctification going on, but in the moment of the rapture of the church, our catching up, instantly, this mortal will put on immortality. And so a, a perfected escape, another indication of that pre-tribulation rapture of the church. Number eight, we talked about last week. This one's a little more controversial, I concede, and that is being prepared for departure. 
And we talked a lot about that word departure, which in the Greek is apostasia, where we get the translation apostasy. And it's the verse, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, let no one in any way deceive you, for the day of the Lord will not come unless the apostasia comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Whole apostasia is the departure. Now, in the Greek, it could be the departure from faith, or it could be the departure to the Lord, which is the way I lean. I think that's what it means. I think it's, it's a, another mysterious pointing hint to the rapture of the church. But listen, I don't hang my rapture theology on that verse. And I wanted to come back and revisit that just to say there are good Bible teachers, pastor friends of mine, actually, uh, scholars, I, guys who, who come out and they contend that hoapostasia is a mass falling away from the Lord rather than a mass departure to the Lord. I think it's a mass departure to the Lord. I think the context leans that way as you continue on in the passage because Paul immediately writes, you know what restrains him, that is the Antichrist now, so that in his time he will be revealed, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, and he who now restrains him will do so until he is what? Taken out of the way. So there's a taking away that Paul immediately is describing after saying that there's gonna be a departure. So I put those two together. Now there are others, again, who say, no, 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 it's a mass, it's a mass apostasy, a mass falling away of faith in the church. You know what? I, you could make a case for both. And it may be a double-edged prophecy where we're looking at both happening, a massive falling away and a massive departure. So we'll have to wait and see on that one. But both are biblical concepts. Both are biblical concepts. Listen, I've said this before. If it's in the Bible, that's good enough for me. You know, I don't need multiple verses to prove something to me. However especially in the case of prophecy, mysterious language, or veiled language that, that, that we're not exactly sure that we think, but we're, we're still trying to work it out, don't build your entire doctrine around one verse. Don't do that. Build your understanding on the person of Jesus Christ. That's where you gotta start. So if you're confused about anything, you start by you look at Jesus. You look at the nature of the character of God, which we've talked about. And if a doctrinal position is correct or legit, guess what? It'll be supported by Jesus. And it will be seen, not in one verse, but it will be seen throughout his word, which is why we're now on our fourth week talking about the pre-tribulation rapture of the church, because it's all over the place. It is throughout the word. So we come to number nine in the study, and some of you were really excited because I said, hey, we're gonna talk Book of Revelation on Wednesday night. Well, my apologies. <laughs> Bait and switch, you gotta wait a week. The reason is I sat down to study and realized what we're gonna talk about tonight has to be talked about before we get to Revelation. In fact, what we're gonna talk about tonight has been called by prophecy scholars the key that unlocks the revelation. And if I started tonight and started talking and doing a run-through of Revelation and, and pointing things out there, I would be continually running back to where we're gonna be tonight to try and explain what we're talking about. So I thought, well, let's just do that. <laughs> and then we'll go to Revelation. And really, I've got one point tonight to add to the list, one point, 
point number nine. And with this one point, we're going to dig in. We're going to really think through and, and, and process some things. But the one point is also only going to answer one question. It's only going to give us one sense of proof of the pre-tribulation rapture. Let me ask you a question really quickly as, as we're going to get ready to turn to this one place. And that is, have you adjusted to the time change? <laughs> we were driving over here tonight and Corey's like, Dad, it's six o'clock. It's light outside. This is one of the hardest things about the time change for me. And I thought about that. That's true. You know, they say spring ahead. It feels more like slog ahead in my house, you know, or maybe stumble out of bed. But the time change, if you want to stay up with the times, you're going to need the right app. So you're going to want to pick up this app, not TikTok, but God's clock. God's clock. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. We're going to turn our Bibles back to Daniel chapter 9. And Israel is God's clock. Israel is the application to understanding where we are in the times. And this prophecy we'll look at. Some of you have looked at it before. And if you have, that's great. I have too. And I learned things this week going back over something that I've considered and prayed over and read multiple times. But this is big. Daniel chapter 9. I'm going to do the whole chapter. Pick it up in verse one. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. As Daniel sits down to write, he is probably 80, maybe 85, maybe 90 years old. Daniel was roughly 17, 18 years old when he and his friends were taken off in, into Babylonian captivity in the first deportation of Babylonian captivity. He's now been here this whole time. Daniel is now studying the book of Je the scroll of Jeremiah and it hits him. <gasps> 70 years. How old am I? <laughs> 70 years. And he realizes the time is almost up. And so he begins to pray. And this is so powerful to me because Daniel is in the word, and that leads him to prayer. And these two things together are the prescription for readiness. Jesus says, be ready. Live ready. It doesn't mean that we're anxious all the time and constantly looking up and keeping our sunroofs open and our shoelaces untied. It means that we have hearts that are being made ready to be with the Lord. And the two best ways I know are the word and prayer. Daniel's in the word, reading the word, pouring over the word, and he begins to pray. If he had not been studying Jeremiah at this time, he would not have been ready for the revelation that he's just about to receive. And this, my friends, in all of the Hebrew scriptures is, I, I, my opinion, the biggest single revelation that was given about the coming of Messiah. And Daniel wouldn't have been ready for it but he was in the word 
and he was in prayer. By the way, just showing up here tonight, you are readying yourself. You can say, as of this moment, I am living to be prepared, to be ready for the coming of Jesus. Well, he begins to pray, and I'm just gonna read through the prayer. I prayed to the Lord my God, verse four, and confessed and said, alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us, open shame, as it is this day. To the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away and all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Verse nine, to the Lord our God, Belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Real quick, just notice this. I gotta insert this. It says, even though the word belong is in italics, it's not actually there, but, but the inference is, which is why they put the word there, but it's interesting how it's translated. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness. Shouldn't it be to the Lord our God belongs compassion and forgiveness? Well, it would be if God was singular, but it's not. To Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh, our plural God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God uh, to walk in his teachings, which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. And by the way, Daniel would know because he's in the teaching of the prophet Jeremiah. Daniel himself, a prophet of the Lord, and yet he is studying the prophets. He says, Verse 11, indeed all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. We read that in Deuteronomy. Thus he has confirmed his words which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on us great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us, for the Lord our God is, a righteous, is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. There's so much here, but Daniel recognizes the calamity is due to unfaithfulness on Israel's part and faithfulness on God's part. That is such a right attitude in our lives. Man, if it's going wrong, rather than, God, why are you doing this to me? How about, Lord, how can I write my heart to be aligned with you? You must be doing this to get my attention. But he goes on. Verse 15, and now, O Lord, our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is to this day, we have sinned, we have been wicked. Notice how many times Daniel says we. 
O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. That's the temple burned down by Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, listen and take action for your own sake. Oh my God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. It is a prayer of personal responsibility. Daniel taking himself on behalf of and for his people and owning this stuff himself. It is a prayer of repentance and it is a prayer of return and it's interesting that it is prayed by the one man in scriptures with the exception of Jesus Christ himself for whom there is not a single mention of sin. Did Daniel sin? Of course he did. But we don't have any record of it. We can make inference, you know, perhaps he sinned at the time that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the furnace for not worshiping. Maybe he got out of town so that wouldn't have to be on him. But even that's a guess. We have no mention of sin in the life of Daniel, and yet Daniel prays this prayer, and what you get is a sense of a sinner in need of salvation, of a sinner looking for forgiveness, of a heart that is turned toward the Lord for the sake of the Lord. It's amazing. Now again, I'm not saying Daniel didn't sin, just that he's a righteous dude. Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 13 says, Son of man, if a country sins against me, this is interesting, any country, by committing unfaithfulness and I stretch out my hand against it, destroy its supply of bread, send famine against it, shut down a, a, a local bank. No, I'm sorry, I, I added that one. That was just me. <laughs> and cut off from it both man and beast, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in its midst, by their righteousness they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord God. I think we need to look at America and recognize that this is rebellion and this is the calamity that is brought on by a rebellious people. But you know what? My tendency is to pray against and not to pray for. I say that to my own shame. The tendency to look at all those rebellious, sick, twisted people out there as being the real problem in America rather than saying, no, it's me. My people. We have sinned against you, Lord. We have embraced this country and its morals or lack thereof. We all have a part to play in that. And so as we pray for our country, pray we. Lord, we have sinned against you. The wonderful thing is that in Jesus Christ, your sins have already been washed clean. But that doesn't mean that my heart can't acknowledge my part in all this and it keeps me humble, and it also turns my heart toward people who are lost and confused and on the outside rather than against them. And if anybody wonders, by the way, why we're still here after 2,000 years, Lord, rapture us already. 
This is not dependent upon us, but the question is, do we pray like Daniel? I think we could learn something. We could also learn something from Ezra, who prays a similar prayer in Ezra chapter nine, and we could learn from Nehemiah, who prays a similar prayer in Nehemiah chapter nine. Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, chapter nine, chapter nine, chapter nine. If you want a place to go and spend some time meditating and focused on this kind of praying, go to chapter nine of all three of those books. Are we pouring over God's word like Daniel was there in Jeremiah so that we can be aligned with his agenda for the church and for the world? I love Daniel because he's got such a heart for the Lord and for what God is doing. Spurgeon once said, oh, that we studied your Bible more. Oh, that we all did how we could plead the promises. How often we should prevail with God when we could hold him to his word and say, quote, remember the word unto thy servant upon which thou hast caused me to hope. Oh, it is grand praying when our mouth is full of God's word, for there is no word which can prevail with him like his own word. Praying the word of God, which is what Daniel is doing. Now, verse 20, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, that's Mount Moriah, that is where Jerusalem lies, while I was still speaking in prayer. Then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, that's in chapter eight, came to me in my extreme weariness at about the time of the evening offering, and the entire prayer takes three minutes to pray without commentary by Rick. Three minutes if you just read through the prayer. I timed it again today, just reading through it, and that's, that's praying it in English. It might go a little faster in Hebrew, but you're still looking at about a three-minute period of time, and in this three minutes, as Daniel's praying, already Gabriel has been dispatched from heaven and is standing there waiting for Daniel to finish. I love the scene. J. Vernon McGee even gives the sense that maybe he was tapping his foot. You know, look up, Daniel, I'm right here. Isaiah 65, verse 24 says, it will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. Now that's a kingdom promise. It's a beautiful, powerful kingdom promise that you don't, I mean, before you even begin to open your mouth in prayer, God knows. It's a kingdom promise, but I believe it's already in play for kingdom people, for citizens of the kingdom. Before you call, he's already heard. Well, then why should I pray? Because he wants to hear from you. And because prayer is relationship. Like Augustine said, true whole prayer is nothing but love. And because prayer changes me. I pray for all those reasons, not because I, you know, I gotta tell God something he doesn't know. He knows. And so Gabriel is there. He's standing there, this messenger angel. Gabriel is always the messenger angel to things related to Israel. He comes to Daniel. He's gonna show up to Zacharias, whose son is John the Baptist, and tell him you're gonna have a son, and then he's gonna be mute until <laughs> the birth. He shows up to Mary. It's all Gabriel. And it's all things related to the people of Israel and the Jewish Messiah. Gabriel is God's messenger to God's peculiar treasure. Note this, 
at the end of verse 21, what time was it? It's about the time of the evening offering. That's interesting. The time of the evening offering. Daniel's in Babylon. There is no evening offering. There's no temple. There's no temple, there's no offering, and he's not even in Jerusalem to pretend to make an offering, but Daniel is, he writes this down, I'm praying, and this happened at about the time of the evening offering. What does that tell you? It tells you Daniel's on God's time. Daniel is now almost 70 years in Babylonian captivity, but he's still on Jerusalem standard time. He's still thinking in terms of the evening offering. Remember in the story of Daniel and the lion's den, remember what gets him in trouble as he prays, opening his window three times a day? I suggest that it's at all the times of the offerings, and this is now the evening offering. This is when Daniel would be praying anyway. This was Daniel's habit. It's what he did. And at the time of the evening offering, he would be praying. He's on God's time. Listen to me, the evening offering was the ninth hour. The ninth hour, which is 3 p.m., which is the exact same time the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world would die on Calvary. And that is what this prophecy is gonna be about. Coincidence? God doesn't work in coincidences. This is profound timing of the Lord at the prayer of Daniel. Matthew 27, 46 says, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that point, he dies. Are you on God's time? Conviction, because my time can be insane. Cheryl and I have been just talking about, you know, between soccer, taekwondo, and ballet, our time is nuts. Am I on God's time? Daniel was on God's time. Daniel, who was a high up in the government there in Babylon, was on God's time, praying three times a day, and right now it's the evening offering. You might say, well, in this crazy culture, how can we be on God's time? Verse 22. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, oh Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, so give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. I have come, Gabriel says, to give you insight with understanding, not to give you something mysterious that people are gonna argue about for 2,000 years. Insight with understanding. That, that's literally verse 22. It's literally skill with understanding. What, what the word indicates in the Hebrew is wisdom and discernment for what is about to come. I want to give you wisdom. I want you to have this, this clear, skillful thinking with this prophecy so that you can have some sense of where it's headed so that we, as we study this, can know can have a clear view. It's like, like the men of Issachar. Remember them, First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, it says, of the sons of Issachar, men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do, their chiefs were 200, and all their kinsmen were at their command. This is a tribe of leaders who were tuned in. They were on God's time. 
And because they were on God's time, they were wisely discerning what was taking place around them. That's why we're talking about this. That's why we're in week number four talking about the rapture of the church. My friends, this is not about proving a doctrinal point. If we come to the end of this study and you say, Rick, I'm, I'm still a mid-triver, I'll say, well, I really feel sorry for you, but at the same time, that's not the point. The point is that we get on God's time. And the point is that we are aligned with the teachings of the Lord. And we understand what we're supposed to do in these days. Acts 17, 11 says the Bereans were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Thank you, by the way, for every email that you've sent me with questions. Thank you for examining the scriptures. That is so heartwarming to me, even if I get behind on responding. <laughs> I love getting that. I love the questions. They come in and I go, this, this sister is thinking, this brother is studying, this person is taking this absolutely seriously, and that's what we're to do. That's how we stay on God's time, rather than getting wrapped up in our own. So here we go. Verse 24. <laughs> 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. Stop right there. It's not weeks. Um, and I think many of you know this, but the Mishnah, Mishnah is the oral tradition of the rabbinical teachers, of the rabbinical commentaries, the oral tradition that was finally written down was called the Mishnah, and it is the most ancient of all the, of all the Hebrew commentaries of the Bible. The Mishnah declares that this prophecy should literally translate in the Hebrew 70 weeks of years. 70 weeks of years. So if your Bible says 70 weeks have been decreed for your people, that's a misnomer. If you're looking at it in Hebrew, it is 70 units of seven, or as the rabbis say, 70 weeks of years. What does that mean? Well, if a week is seven days, then, then we're talking about a week of years, that's seven years. 70 times seven equals what? 490. 70 times seven, 490. So keep that in mind. This is 70 periods of seven years each. And it's explicit in the language. The word 70 is shavim in Hebrew, which is the multiple of sheva. Sheva is the number seven. There's, there's a uh, channel seven Israel is called Arutz Sheva. It's their channel seven news channel. Arutz Sheva, seven. And, and shavim is seven times 10. It's 70. You and I have a tendency in our culture to think in terms of tens. You know, we'll, we'll think in terms of decades or, or multiples of 10. We don't often think of heptads. I didn't even know what a heptad was until years ago studying Daniel chapter nine and realized a heptad is the English word for a unit of seven. Jewish people think in terms of sevens. This is all over the scriptures. You know this, it's the number of completion. And so this number is very important in Hebraic thinking and it's just a way that they would measure things. So God is using this. It's important to the Lord, which I think is why it's important to Israel. But he says, shavim, that is 70. And then the next word, which is translated here, weeks, is shavuim. Shavim, shavuim, 70 shavuim. And shavuim, again, is a unit of seven. 70 units of seven, or again, 490 years. Why 77s? Well, 
Again, it is, it is God's number, seven. It is that number of completion. But Daniel is studying at this moment the scroll of Jeremiah. And because of what he prays and what he says and what he realizes, he's gotta be somewhere between what ultimately would be chapters 25 through 29. When Daniel was studying, there were no chapters, right? No verses. You just went to the head of the book and you just started to read. But he was in that section that you can find in those chapters, 25 to 29, and he realizes that Israel is at the end of the 70-year captivity in Babylon. Jeremiah 29, verse 10 says, Thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I'll visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place, that is Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And Christians have taken that verse and run with it, but my friends, it was first promised to Israel. We can, we can co-opt the verse as long as we're grafted in, you know, with God's people, but this promise was first and foremost to Israel. Which is why Paul says in Romans eleven twenty six, 26, and so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and remove ungodliness from Jacob. But listen to me, the practical reason for the 70-year captivity, do you know what it was? Do you know why they had to be in Babylon 70 years? The what? It, it was punishment for... Yes. <laughs> what I, I'll just tell you guys what I heard up here. Punishment for I'm like, they're speaking in tongues. No, many of you know, but let me spell it out. It's punishment because of the rejection of the Shemitah. The Shemitah year, uh, which was, you know this, that every, every seven years the land was to be given rest. And for 490 years, Israel ignored it. Israel continued to work the land the seventh year. Can you even imagine what a blessing it would be if we got every seventh year off? Everybody, your off's coming. I mean, you know, Hawaii would be completely decimated. <laughs> every seventh year, take it off. Let the land rest. I'm gonna give you more than enough in the sixth year, and then in the eighth year, you're gonna have a boon as well, so don't worry about it. I'm gonna cover you, the Lord says, but take that seven year, seventh year off, and they ignored him, and they didn't do it, so God said, all right, I'm gonna give the land 70 years of rest because for 490 years, you've ignored my command. So this was an actually an environmental move on the Lord's part as he takes his people into captivity so the land, his land, could get its rest. And by the way, you know what that tells us about Daniel? He believed in a literal fulfillment of prophecy. That is to him, 70 years meant 70 years. Just as 70 times seven means 490 years. So you gotta keep that time frame in mind as we continue. 70 sevens have been decreed for your people. Whose people? Daniel's people. Who are Daniel's people? Israel. This is a prophecy to and for and about God's peculiar treasure, Israel. And that has to be known as well. 490 years are decreed for Israel. To do what? To finish the transgression, number one. Number two, to make an end of sin. Number three, to make atonement for iniquity. Number four, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Has that happened? 
I don't think so. Number five, to seal up vision and prophecy. Number six, to anoint the most holy place. This is all for your people, Daniel, Israel, and for your holy city, Daniel, Jerusalem. And what we're reading here, you could call the TikTok app of God. Don't spell it wrong. Tick, talk, tick, talk with this prophecy. God set the timepiece in motion, the standard for the end of the age. The way that we can read and know what is about to take place and how it is laid out. It is not Cupertino that determines our time. It is not Greenwich uh, Mean Time. It's actually GED, God's end of days. That is what this is about. He uses the word decreed. He says 77s have been decreed for Israel and for Jerusalem. Decreed, that word is interesting because in Hebrew, I'll just say it to you because it's, it's not tiktok, but it's nechtok. Nechtok, which is divided or marked out or the word spliced. 77s have been marked out of history. If you look at all of history, God took 490 years and spliced it out and said, this is for Israel. This is specific to you and to the holy city, Jerusalem. For God's purposes, 490 years have been spliced from the entire chronology of history. It's interesting he's done this because history is not a random path to nowhere from nowhere, as the atheist would argue. We're just rolling along randomly. No, no, no. The Bible declares that everything God does is absolutely intentional and that this is all headed to his final conclusion, even as he has spliced out 490 years for his purposes. And so again, these six things are listed. I don't have time tonight to go into each one of these, but they are very specific. And each one of these six items, six is the number of man, each one of these six items must be accomplished and will be accomplished within the time frame of this 490 year period. Now, if someone says, well, wait a minute though, couldn't some of this be applied to periods in history past during which the temple was standing? Like, like for example, 168 BC. Couldn't one, and some would say this, what, what is decreed here, what we're about to read in the next couple of verses it happened 168 BC when a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, that Greek ruler, came in and stormed Jerusalem and, and trashed the temple and spattered pig's blood all over the inside of the temple to defile it, set up a, 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 an altar to Jupiter in the temple. Couldn't that be what this is talking about? And, and I'll show you why it absolutely could not. Because something horrible that happened at the time of Antiochus, but is only a picture of something Jesus 190 plus years later said, no, this is future. This thing that happened there, that's a picture of something future. When you see this, Jesus says. So it can't be way back then. Well, what about 70 AD? See, the preterist, that view says everything in the book of Revelation and what Daniel is told here, this prophecy, it all was fulfilled in 70 AD. Nope. Because if you notice, the last thing said is this is also to anoint the most holy place. 
In 70 AD, the most holy place, the holy of holies in the temple was not anointed. It was burned to the ground by Rome. So it can't apply to 168 with Antiochus. It can't apply to 70 AD at the time Rome destroyed Jerusalem. It has to be at a time yet future. And nothing like what's described here happened, at least the, the last verse of what's described here. I'm getting ahead of myself because I get excited. There has not been a most holy place since the destruction of the temple in AD 70. So reading on in the prophecy, verse 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree, this is incredibly specific, to know and discern from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, Mashiach Nagid is the Hebrew, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. And it, Jerusalem, will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. From the decree to rebuild Jerusalem to the time of Mashiach Nagid, Messiah the Prince, there's going to be, as he describes here, seven sevens and then a break. I'll explain why. And then 62 sevens. Add all that up in terms of years and, and, and we should expect Messiah the Prince on site. Okay, start with the decree. Biblically speaking, and even historically, there are four decrees that people have tried to place to this. There's a decree, and this starts, this starts the tick-tock, okay, of the 490 years, a decree starts it. Just as a decree or a treaty will start the final seven years. But a, a decree starts it, so which one is it? The decree of Cyrus that was given in 538 BC, and you can read about that in Ezra chapter one, verses one through four. The decree of Cyrus said, gave the right basically of the Jewish exiles to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. It's a very specific decree and you can read about it. That's not the decree. That's not what's described here. Second decree, second possibility, the decree of, of another Darius, not the one that Daniel's talking about, another Darius that was in 517 B.C., you can read about that in Ezra chapter six, verses six through 12. The verses are up there. And it is the right of Ezra himself to lead a group of people then to return and rebuild the temple that was not yet rebuilt. So the second decree was given that, yes, you can go, go do that. Then the third possible decree was the first decree of Artaxerxes. He gave two. But of the possible decrees, Artaxerxes, his first decree was 458 B.C., and this is in Ezra chapter seven, verses 11 through 26. And that gave Ezra the right to replenish the temple and restore and restart the sacrifices and bring back the temple implements and utensils. That is not what's described here. What's described is the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem with plaza and moat in times of distress. It's a very specific decree. It's the fourth decree. It is the decree, the second decree of Artaxerxes, which was given, and we know this historically, March 14th, 445 B.C. March 14th, 445 B.C., the decree was given, and you can read it in Nehemiah chapter two, verses one through eight, which gave Nehemiah the right to fully restore and rebuild Jerusalem with streets and walls and all, and it was built in times of distress. So it perfectly fits the prophecy that is brought by Gabriel to Daniel. 
The, that's the fourth of the four decrees, and that's the right one, the only one that matches the description. And by the way, it took seven times seven periods of time, or, or seven years, that is, it took 49 years from the decree to the rebuilding of Jerusalem in times of distress in the days of Nehemiah took 49 years. That's the first seven sevens. And then you add to that another 62 sevens would pass before Messiah the Prince. Another, so 49 years from the decree, decree is given, 49 years go by, Jerusalem is now rebuilt, and then another 62 periods of seven, 434 more years would pass by. Now to, to get the date on this, and we are gonna do a little date setting tonight, check this out, we have to transfer uh, from the, the, what we would think of as the Gregorian solar calendar, we have to transfer to the Jewish lunar calendar. Okay, the Gregorian calendar, the calendar that we use is 365 days a year. The Jewish lunar calendar is 360 days a year. So it's gonna be different. So you gotta transfer to the Jewish calendar and you discover that the total is now, when you make that transfer, it is 173,880 days. Okay, by the way, if, you're, if you wanna really dig into this, a great book called The Coming Prince by a guy named Sir Robert Anderson, written back in the 1800s, he did the research. So this is not, this is not my brilliance, this is his. Uh, he figured it out, he did the elbow grease, and he put it together, and you can track these things. 173,880 days. So, beginning March 14th, 445 BC, which was that decree to rebuild Jerusalem, and spanning a total of the 49 years plus 434 years, which is 483 years total, that's 173,880 days. You're all totally with me. You're not glazing over. I think that's great. <laughs> and adjusting for leap years. Because if you forget to do that, you're gonna come out in the wrong place. You gotta adjust for leap years. When you do that, the prophecy states absolutely very clearly that the Messiah must arrive on Nisan the 10th on the Jewish calendar. That is the day of the annual selection of the Passover lamb. So that is very potent for the people of Israel. Nisan the 10th, Messiah, your Messiah, Messiah the Prince is gonna arrive on that day. We translate that to our historical calendar, April the 6th, 32 AD. What happened on that day? A rabbi from Nazareth triumphantly rode into Jerusalem as the people cried, Hosanna to the King. Messiah the Prince, Messiah the King, Messiah the Ruler entered Jerusalem on that day. Absolutely precise. Zechariah 9, verse 9, the prophecy rejoiced greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Luke 19, 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd, on that day, they said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. You silence the people who right now are praising my name and shouting Hosiah, we're gonna have a rock concert right here. And he was right. By the way, Corey, go ahead and put that screen up, would you? I want you to look at this just for a second. This gives a timeline. 
And, and if you have uh, ever struggled to understand this, and it may be small if you're in the back, I apologize for that. Um, I will tell you this, if you'd like to get some outstanding charts of the end times, I don't, this is not me selling a book, I get nothing for this, um, and I don't have any of these for you to buy, so you just have to go to Amazon. Charting the End Times by Tim LaHaye and Thomas Ice, this is a great resource. If you want to be able to see, like this exact uh, timeline is in this book, okay? Um, this is super helpful for navigating the tribulation, the pre-tribulation rapture, the teachings through the book of Revelation, all that, charting the end times by Tim LaHaye and Thomas Ice. But if you look at this and follow it through, you see the seven times seven on the left side there, 49 years from the decree to go, the decree of Artaxerxes to go and rebuild Jerusalem. 49 years passes, and then another 450. 34 years, and Messiah the Prince arrives April 6th, 32 AD. And that's where we are in, in the timeline. And then, keep it up there just for a second, Corey, a, a moment longer, and let me read this. Then after the 62 weeks, so after that second period of time, at some point after that, verse 26 tells us, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the word cut off in the Hebrew means killed. So it's gonna be precisely on this day that Messiah the Prince shows up, and at some point after that, he's gonna be killed. Guess what? Within a week, he was killed. So it's right on schedule. Then we see this thing called the church age, the rapture of the church, the tribulation period, which is a period of seven years, so I'm kind of giving you ahead of time where we're headed here. And then at the end of the tribulation, the second coming of Jesus to set foot on the earth, a thousand year kingdom age, at the end of that, the great white throne judgment, and then the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. And we just go home, you know. We're actually gonna go home in the rapture and forever be with the Lord from that point forward. And there's gonna be a lot of fun between the rapture and the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. We got a lot to do, a whole lot more than you thought. But keep that in mind, and you can go back now, Corey, but, but that is available in this book, and there it is for you to take a look at. And, and if you'd like, we'll, maybe, Corey, at the very end when I'm done, we'll put it back up and people can get a screenshot of it or something if you'd like that. Verse 26 again, at this, after that point, so after the Messiah comes on schedule, and he did, at some point after that, you and I know the end of the week, he was cut off and Gabriel continues, would have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city, Jerusalem, and the sanctuary, the temple, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. Isaiah the prophet says, by oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, Isaiah 53 verse eight, who considered that he was cut off? Who? Messiah out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people for whom the stroke or to whom the stroke was due. I had this great um, poetic saying by, by a commentator, uh, Heslop, who said, born in another man's stable, cradled in another man's manger, nowhere to lay his head during his life here on earth, buried in another man's tomb after dying on a cursed cross, the Christ of God and the friend of the friendless was indeed cut off and had nothing. This is all about Jesus. What we understand, even about the end times, is all about Jesus. And the clock 
ticked. 483 years, the clock was just ticking. Moment after moment, year after year, exactly as described by Gabriel to Daniel, nonstop from the, from the signing of that first decree, it ticked, 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 all the way 483 years, and then it stopped. The clock stopped. Why did the clock stop? Because Israel, for whom this prophecy was given, rejected God's plan. We don't want it. Stop the clock. And so he did. Now, Israel rejected Messiah by sending him to the cross. However, they did it via the agency of the Roman government. Who are the people of the prince who is to come? This, this word prince is interesting because it's used of Messiah, but now it's used of another prince. A prince who is to come. And the people of the prince who is to come are going to, will, he says, destroy the city and the sanctuary. And sometime after this, that's exactly what happened. Rome destroyed the city and the sanctuary. So guess what? We know who the people are of the prince who is to come. It was Rome, which should tell us something about the prince who is to come, who the Bible describes very clearly as the Antichrist, and he will come of Roman Descent. Now, this people love to have fun with this one and come up with all possible. Maybe he's Muslim, just but he came from Eastern Europe, and because the Muslims came and they they conquered that area, uh, Constantinople and 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 on, and and so maybe he's look. It, it, he will come of Roman descent, is the most simple way to understand Eastern European Roman descent. That's going to be somewhere in the lineage of the Antichrist. Why is he called the prince when Jesus is Messiah the prince? Now there's the prince who is to come. Why is he called the prince? Again, the word is nagid, and it means ruler, captain, or leader, but he comes like the Messiah. He comes as a false Messiah, a self-styled savior, if you will, for the world, and he's finally gonna show his cards claiming to be God. Watch this, verse 27. And by the way, there's more I could say on verse 26. Wish I had more time. But even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And from the crucifixion forward in history, there's been nothing but war on the earth. It's just been a nonstop for the last 2,000 years of nation against nation rising more and more. And it continues to this very day as one of the big arguments in our country is should we be involved with Ukraine or not? And people have very strong opinions about that. My point is not to take a side right now, but simply to say wars continue and desolations are decreed. And this is the state of the world for 2,000 years. But verse 27 then says, and he, he is important here, he is the prince who is to come. This, the he is referring back to the most recent subject, which is the prince who is to come, so it's Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many for one seven. Not one week. You don't make a one-week covenant in government. It's a seven-year covenant that he makes. How many of the 70 Shabuim are left since the clock stopped? One period of seven, or Seven years. 490 minus 483, just to be clear. Jeremiah 30, verse seven says, alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. Jesus agreed with that in Matthew 24. There has never been anything like it in history, nor will there ever be again. The tribulation. Daniel says it's the time of Jacob's distress. But he will be saved 
from it. Why? Because the timepiece is Israel. Israel in relation with God, God working with Israel for 483 years, this was a, a plan first and foremost to the Jew. Remember what Paul said? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Remember what Jesus said in his ministry? Go into all the cities of the Jews, but don't go into the, any of the towns of the Gentiles. You take the gospel first to the Jewish people. That was the 483 years in this plan given in the Hebrew scriptures to Jewish people and all the way up to the cross, the clock was ticking and then Jesus died on the cross and it stopped. And seven years are left unfulfilled in this prophecy. Seven years. And in the middle of that seven, so three and a half years would be the middle, right? Am I, is my math correct on that one? Okay. In the middle, he, that is Antichrist, will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even a complete, until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. That's called the abomination of desolation. Now, Bible students, you know this, but if you don't, listen, three and a half years in, something is gonna happen during that seven-year tribulation called the abomination of desolation. Jesus talked about it in Matthew 24. It's at the midpoint, and that is when Antichrist finally shows his true colors. For the first three and a half years, this guy is gonna seem like a savior. Hey, he's got the answers. Antichrist, Antichrist, he's our man. If he can't do it, well, he can't. And three and a half years in, he's gonna go into the rebuilt, what we call the tribulation temple because it's a temple that is gonna be built in the tribulation. He's gonna go into that temple. And he's gonna declare, guess what, after all, <laughs> I'm not just a world leader, I'm God. Worship me. We'll see more of that in our study next week. But Daniel 7.25 says of Antichrist, he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One. He will intend to make alterations in times and in law. Well, you think, you think spring ahead is bad. Just wait till Antichrist gets hold of the times. They will be given into his hand. Daniel 7.25, listen, for a time, times, and half a time. That's always hard to do with one hand. Okay. Three and a half. A time, times, and half a time. Daniel eleven thirty one. Forces from his, him will arise and they will desecrate the sanctuary fortress, the temple. They will do away with the regular sacrifice, which will restart at the beginning of the tribulation as I think part of this peace treaty. And they will set up the abomination of desolation. What is that? Someone claiming to be God sitting in the temple and declaring his rule from a throne set up in the temple, defiling the temple in the worst possible way. And Jesus said, when you see, future tense, the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, this particular description, when you see it standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. For anyone who denies the legitimacy of Daniel as a prophet, Jesus just legitimized him. In Matthew 24, he declares Daniel is, was the prophet. And Jesus legitimized this prophecy. When you see this happen, and you will, those in Judea, why in Judea? Jewish people. Time of Jacob's distress. You must flee to the mountains. And they will. That's part of next week as well.
Jesus declared the legitimacy both of Daniel and this prophecy. God's timepiece is absolutely precise. A seven-year covenant or treaty signed again between Antichrist and Israel begins the clock ticking again for seven years. That's why I began and said, if you're mid-trib, all you gotta do is wait for that treaty. When it's signed, start your watch. Tick, 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 three and a half years, then you expect to go home at that time. Or pre-wrath, four years, five years, you're gonna go home somewhere in there. Or post-trib, you just wait for the whole thing. Tick, 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 and seven years you go. But Jesus says we don't know the day or the hour. It completely undermines all three of the other perspectives. And I'm not just trying to undermine perspective, trying to get on God's clock, trying to align with his timing and not my own. So this seven-year period starts off with that treaty. Three and a half years in, Antichrist declares his, his rule, his, himself to be God, takes his seat in the temple. Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse three, Paul said, as we read last week, let no one in any way deceive you, for the day of the Lord will not come unless the apostasy or departure, whatever you're gonna translate that, unless that comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of perdition. By the way, that's what Judas was called son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God and displays himself as being God. So that's at the midpoint of the tribulation. Guess what? It's not rapture that happens there. It's rupture <laughs> to all things that the Jewish people were thinking could be holy and good again as we have our temple back. We can worship. We can sacrifice. It absolutely confirms. And the precision of the seven years, he says at the exact midpoint this is gonna happen, and then Daniel 7, 25, Daniel 12, 7, Revelation 12, 14, all use the same phrase, a time, times, and half a time, three and a half years. And in case we might miss it, Revelation chapter 12, verse six, describes it as 1,260 days, three and a half years. Revelation 11, verse two, and Revelation 13, verse five, describes it as 42 months. Do the math, three and a half years. What has all this got to do specifically with the pre-tribulation rapture of the church? And the answer for you tonight is nothing. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the pre-tribulation rapture. Then Rick, why did you spend the last hour slogging us through all this stuff? because there's no church in the first 483 years. Why do people keep trying to put the church in the final seven years? It's not about the church. This prophecy, which does describe the, the first coming of Jesus to exact precision and does describe that final year is still hanging out there waiting to be fulfilled, that clock waiting to restart with the signing of that false treaty with Antichrist. That's out there. It still, it doesn't have anything to do with us, with the exception, obviously, of Jesus coming. But beyond that, the church is not in the first 483 years because the church did not exist. The church will not be in the last seven years because the church will not exist on this planet anymore. We're gonna be home with the Lord because we will have been caught up. And that's so important to understand 
Matthew 24, 36, of the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Be on the alert, verse 42, for you do not know the hour or the day which the Lord, your Lord is coming. For this reason, verse 44, you must be ready for the Son of Man's coming at an hour when you do not think. And if you adopt the mid-trib, the pre-wrath, or the post-trib position, all those words that we just listened to, again, spoken by Jesus, are misleading. They only work if you know we don't know the day or the hour and we're gonna go at a time that God determines, not at a time that fits the time clock of Israel in that final seven years. It's not for us. Which is why, do I wanna tell you this yet? No, I'm not gonna tell you that. <laughs> Which is why you need to come back next week because we're gonna talk about it. If you wanna know when the tribulation begins, that's easy. If you want to know how long it's going to be, that's easy. If you want to know what's going to happen three and a half years in, again, easy. Just listen for the tick-tock of God's clock, which begins again with the signing of that treaty. And it will start. And all you got to do then, listen for the tick-tock and watch for Antichrist to rise. And you can have the answer to all those things. Here's the deal. Um, we're not here to hear the ticking of that clock. We're never advised in the Bible to keep our eyes open for the rise of Antichrist. We are looking for Jesus Christ and we're waiting for him to call us home. So the only thing I wanna hear is the sound of his voice saying, come up here. That's what I'm listening for. That's what we're looking for, Jesus and his call. And right now, I don't know the day or the hour, so I can't tell you. I hope it's soon. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the unveiling again of this marvelous prophecy. And Father, again, so important that we get it this week because next week, oh, we're gonna make great sense out of these things. But I thank you, Father, that you are not one who plays games. I thank you for the precision of the prophecy. And I thank you, Father, even for those things that, that may as yet be a tad mysterious, those things that cause us to want to search and be Bereans or, or to be like the men of Issachar who understood the times. Father, may we understand your times. May we, like Daniel, be on your clock and looking for what you have determined for us, which is to come home in the twinkling of an eye. Father, thank you for your words. I pray that you will bless our comprehension with revelation tonight in Jesus' name, amen.